In this week's episode, you get to hear Daniel and me speaking to none other than Kane B. So Kane runs a YouTube channel, uh, which is a fantastic philosophy channel looking at um, a wide variety of topics and ideas within philosophy. And Daniel and I wanted to have Kane on to begin to talk about philosophy, Christianity, uh, morality and free will. And this conversation tackles all of those in a really interesting way. Um, there's a moment in this conversation where Daniel asks a question and Kane doesn't get it. And it was a really refreshing moment for me to be able to reflect that sometimes the way that we view Christianity or the way that Christianity uh, makes sense to Christians just doesn't resonate and doesn't sink into those that haven't been within that worldview. And yeah, Cain being heavily within philosophy and finding the question itself to be confusing, um, as I've already mentioned, was extremely refreshing because it helped me to see that um, there are those that haven't gone through the same sorts of religious traps and trimmings that we as ex-believers might experience or have gone through. Um, so yeah, wherever you are in your journey with faith or outside of faith, um, every now and then someone says something that, uh, yeah, that makes you go, what? That doesn't make sense. And uh, it was Cain doing that in this episode that really got me um, to a point of understanding that there are those outside of Christianity that some of the things within Christianity just don't make sense. Just a side note about the audio in this episode. Um, Kane B is wearing a microphone attached to his shirt, um, which you're going to hear him tapping every now and then. So the clicks and the little noise that you hear is essentially that Kane is just either tapping or pulling the wire by mistake on his microphone. Um, there's nothing I can do to remove that from the from the audio. So um, yeah, you're just going to have to live with that. But I don't think it distracts or takes away from anything that Kane's saying whatsoever. Anyway. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kane B. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination, and I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam and today I'm joined once again by Daniel. How's it going mate? It's going well Sam, a cracking day. Fantastic and we're delighted to announce we've got Kane B with us today. Kane, how are you doing? Yes, I'm, I'm very well thank you. Fantastic. Um, Kane, I've, um, yeah, I've been enjoying your, U uh, your YouTube channel now sorry, uh, for a while and um, really enjoyed the uh, sort of conversations that you've been having. I especially found um, one that you had with um, Stephen Woodford, aka Rationality Rules, um, about Sam Harris to be really, really intriguing. Actually, kind of as you broke broke down his his moral argument and made me go, "Oh, there's so much I don't understand about philosophy." So that, I found that just basically a really fascinating um, conversation. But what I wanted to kind of start off with, Kane, um, is just kind of getting a little bit about you. I'm aware you don't like talking much about yourself, so um, just some real bullet points. Essentially, kind of why why do you have a YouTube channel and why do you share about philosophy? Um, okay, yeah, I mean, I don't mind talking about myself. I just don't know if it's like something I'm that good at. But um, so I'm 
I'm I'm a philosopher, I guess. I mean, I'm I'm doing a PhD, coming to the end of my PhD now. Um, so I've been doing this uh, this this top this field for a while. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess if anybody knows about me, they'll know about me through the YouTube channel, as as you mentioned. Um, uh, why did why did I do it? I think it was just because um, I've always had the belief that uh, the best way to uh, learn something to learn a topic is to figure out how to communicate it to other people um, and so uh, I think that was one of the main things that, that got me started on it was just that I found that you know writing out my thoughts in such a way that I was I was imagining it in my head at first just like okay I'm just going to imagine communicating this to other people and then I realized all right well I've got all of this material why not communicate it to other people and put it online um, and so that's how it started uh, and yeah, there's a lot of, um, it started out as just like lecture videos, introducing uh, particular philosophical topics. Um, I've tried to expand out a little bit more into, you know, discussions and uh, uh, I, I do some videos where I express more of my own views, but um, I, I think that answers the question, does it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. And um, I guess it, it'd be really interesting to kind of hear then um, a, a bit about what philosophy is to you and, and and means to you and why you're why you're doing it i guess i know a kind of you've 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 at least alluded to a couple of times how um sort of ancient philosophers kind of aristotle plato that sort of um that sort of age of philosopher um kind of don't really tick the boxes for you but you find more kind of um current or modern philosophy really does spark something new and i kind of i'm very much aware for a lot of our listeners they might not necessarily understand the differences or kind of understand why somebody would want to to, to do philosophy so would you mind kind of touching on that for us oh okay that's um oh, that's that's a Okay, there, there are actually a couple of questions there because you ask like um, for the difference between you know what like ancient and modern philosophy, and also why would somebody want to do it? So I should just say like my um, I, I, it's not like I have a problem with with ancient philosophy or anything like that. It's just I personally um, have always been more interested in more modern work, and I think the reason for that is that when I came into philosophy, one of the things that really uh, intrigued me about it was um, I was always interested in the question of like how like, the, the limits and scope of our knowledge um, that was always one of the things that I was that I was most interested in was I I want to I want to know like how much can we know about the world and you know what are, what are the limits of that what sorts of things do we know about the world um, and I think that coming at it from that sort of angle, I was just always more interested in more contemporary work because contemporary work is more likely to engage with, you know, the sciences, for instance, um, which I think if you want to know what the world is like, then science is a, a very good place to start. Uh, obviously, you know, when you go back to people like Aristotle, the, I mean, it's, I, I, I don't mean to insult them, but just because of the circumstances, they just didn't know as much. Um, so I, I think because I was always more interested in the more like scientific side, um, I'm just more attracted to contemporary work for that reason. As for why people might be interested in philosophy, I mean, that's a uh, that's that's yeah, that's a, a difficult question to answer. I think that so like a part of the reason why it's difficult to answer is because. I'm not really sure how to define philosophy in general, right? So 
obviously there are uh, a host of different things that we call philosophy. And, you know, I don't know if there is any anything that like unifies them together. So if you look at the sort of work that I'm doing, that's very different to the kind of work that somebody in, I don't know, like an East Asian philosophical tradition might be doing. Um, I, I guess that, you know, broadly speaking, the appeal of philosophy is that it can, I think, help people to, uh, there's a nice, there's a nice phrase which uh, comes from a philosopher called Wilfred Sellers, where he says that um, the goal of philosophy is to understand how things in the broadest sense of the term hang together in the broadest sense of the term, um, which is maybe a bit vague, but I think that's actually a good way of putting it, that, you know, when we do philosophy, we sort of step back from the things that we engage in in everyday life, you know, like we might be, we, we do various things, we have all of these practices in everyday life, like we have the practice of science, we have the practice of morality, like making moral judgments, um, you know, we, we have practices like mathematics, philosophy kind of steps back and like asks for each of those practices, okay, what kind of knowledge do they generate, what's the sort of, you know, practical utility of them, etc. So, um, I, I don't know. I guess that's going to be appealing to some people, but not to everyone. Um, but that's okay. It doesn't have to be appealing to everyone. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's that's my attempt at, a, at, a, at an answer to that. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of funny because this was my first, um, you know, as much as I had come into contact with various bits of philosophy over the years, um, it's really only been in the last couple of years that I've actually properly tried to look into it. And it does feel like, oh, within this this bucket is this massive range of different fields of inquiry and different questions and uh, or um, in typical philosopher fashion, questions about those questions. Um, so yeah, I guess it would be interesting just to hear from you, it, just in terms of you know from your experience, are there other sort of areas of philosophy that you feel are a bit of a dead end, or uh, are there areas that you feel like are helpful for sort of the experts are who are really willing to go into it, and are there areas which actually are are helpful for everyone, and actually you kind of wish everyone sort of had an awareness of that uh, that people grappled with on a more yeah. regular basis. Um, okay, yeah. So um, in terms of areas uh, that are helpful to experts, but that maybe wouldn't have such broad appeal, I think there's a, so there's a lot of work in um, philosophy of language. Uh, philosophy of language um, concerns questions about the nature of meaning and reference. And uh, for various reasons, that became really important to um, uh, like professional philosophy over the 20th century. Now, you know, we can debate about whether or not that was actually worthwhile, but uh, it's like certainly one of those things where if you're going to get into philosophy academically, you just need to know about it in order to understand what happened in professional philosophy over the 20th century. I don't think that that kind of thing is going to be all that important, like on a like to just average people. Um, but I think the areas. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's kind of an obvious answer, but I think, you know, ethics, political philosophy, uh, you know, these are things that we are probably going to want to, like, 
engage. I mean, th these are things that people do engage in, right? Um, is maybe the way to put it. Uh, everybody, pretty much everybody, has this, has this just natural inclination to make uh, moral judgments. Uh, everybody's going to have political views, right? So, uh, insofar as philosophy can help to clarify our thoughts and uh, 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 sort of show us the space of logical possibility in these areas um it's going to be something that's you know useful for people to engage in um and then again like i mean i as i say i work in philosophy of science i think that insofar as an institution like science is uh it's something that plays a really significant role in everybody's life um you know that's something that might be worth it might be worth thinking philosophically about that um and then you asked about areas that are dead ends. Um, I do think there are areas that are dead ends in a, in a sense. So my inclination is to sort of let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, I am totally cool with the fact that there are philosophers who have completely different approaches and completely different views from me. And I think that's worthwhile. But, you know, I do have my own views. And uh, I do think that there are certain fields which I, I would consider to be fundamentally mistaken. Um, so a lot of what is called metaphysics, I see as being fundamentally mistaken in this way, um, where metaphysics is the attempt to uh, understand the underlying structure and nature of reality, I guess would be the, you know, the simple way to put it, right? Uh, uh, your metaphysicians will talk about things like the nature of time and causality and uh uh you know the, the nature of like uh the underlying properties of objects and those sorts of things um i tend to think that a lot of that work is mistaken um so yeah i, I don't know if, if if you want me to expand on any of that but that's the brief answer <laughs> yeah no that's that's really interesting because yeah i've i've kind of uh in my early dabbling, sometimes it feels like metaphysics is kind of like um, a nose trying to figure out what a nose smells like. Uh, <laughs> it feels uh, building into itself and very, very confusing. I've started to try and engage with it because it seems like you can't escape um, it. But uh, yeah, sometimes it does feel like a bit of a dead end. So I, I mean, I'm curious to, to find out because obviously um, in terms of our podcast, it um, for both Sam and I as former Christians uh, turned to atheist. Um, be really interested to hear your view because obviously a big field of philosophy is the question of God. Um, and you didn't mention which which one of those uh, three boxes that sort of question falls into. Where, where would you see that sitting uh, in the field? Okay, yeah, so a great deal of the work that's done on God uh, is within the field of metaphysics because um, if you look at, for instance, arguments for God, um, uh, I, I mean, so just for instance, like, um, you know, the argument that, uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause, um, you know, the universe has a cause of its existence, that sort of, that kind of argument, right? You're, you're dealing with the, uh, fundamental, like nature and origin and structure of reality, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, insofar as, we're talking about the arguments for God, I think we're going to be getting into metaphysics. So, you know, when I say that I see this uh, uh, kind of field as a dead end, um, 
I mean, you can probably guess that I'm not going to be all that sympathetic to uh, the arguments for the existence of God. Um, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have to be metaphysic, have to have to engage in that. But um, I think that the, 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 the problem is that uh, if you're trying to provide a justification for why you believe in God, um, it looks like you're going to be um, you're going to have to accept some very controversial metaphysical assumptions. And, you know, from, from my point of view, these are just things that, you know, we, we can't know. So when I say, I mean, I just gave this example of like the people who claim that everything that begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Um, I would just say there's, there's no grounds for accepting that kind of thing, that kind of claim. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, that's that's the again my very brief statement of my my sort of <laughs> sort of position that I'm going to take. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. I think um, I, it'd be interesting as well to get your view then of. Um, obviously kind of we speak to Christians regularly on the show with Christians that listen to the show as well and um, I think a lot of them would kind of um, probably hear what you're saying just so you're aware and say well kind of you're not you're not willing to engage with these questions therefore how do you know that there is no God I think it'd be, it'd be really interesting to kind of hear kind of how you would take um, or create an argument for there to, to be no God it's almost kind of um, we're kind of we're, we're starting from the assumption that, that there is no God which is actually the assumption that we're all taking anyway which is completely fine but obviously the Christians starting with the assumption that there is a God so um, do, you, do, do you feel like they, that, that we should build a case for there being no God or do you think that should be the sort of um, status quo that we then build our philosophy from like how do you how do you reconcile those two things um, I mean I don't know whether I would whether I would try to build a case that there's no God. A lot of it depends on what exactly um, you're taking the term God to mean, right? Because if you just mean um, that, you know, there's like a, a designer of the universe um, or something, you know, kind of vague like that, then I'm like, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy to just be called an agnostic on that point. Um, I would just say that, yeah, like the, 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 the question of the, you know, the origin of the universe or the, the like fundamental ground of reality or whatever, I have no idea about that. So um, in that sense, yeah, I'm an agnostic. If we're talking about a God that's supposed to be omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnibenevolent, <laughs> you know, et cetera, that has all of those properties, um, and the the claim is and we're then adding the additional claim that we know something about what that god wants of us um well that's a that's a different you know that's a different matter entirely um on, on that point i think that I, I i would say that i am an atheist about that kind of god but i don't know if like so in my case for instance i would just say well look the the sort of views that I have in various other philosophical areas just entail that that kind of thing can't exist. So, for instance, um, as I mean, I don't know, we, we might end up talking about this more, um, but I'm a moral anti-realist. I don't think there are any moral properties. Um, and I think that, you know, that I have good reason to believe this. Well, if I have good reason to believe that, then obviously I've, I've also got good reason to believe that there isn't an entity that uh, is 
omnibenevolent say or that is benevolent that has the property of goodness now of course that is not going to be remotely persuasive to somebody who's starting from the point of view of being a christian um so i wouldn't offer that as like an argument against their position if i was trying to persuade them because i assume that if you're a christian then you think that there, there are moral properties right um uh but again like it just in terms of like my own views uh that's going to because I'm committed to that position, I'm also going to be committed to there being no God in that sense. Um, as for uh, like the more general question of, yeah, how, like building a case, um, you know, against against God. Um, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I, I think that. There, there are lots of different reasons why I think I think the, the thing is just a sort of general point, right, is my view is that there's no such thing as a knockdown argument in philosophy. Um, whenever we're engaging in philosophy, we're always just considering like a whole bunch of different reasons and weighing them up, you know, and then it's like 10 reasons on this side and 10 reasons on that side. So when I think about just the, the you know, the general theist position, um, I think, okay, uh, it seems to me that all of the arguments in favour of God fail. I think that they're weak. Um, and given my sort of general philosophical views, they end up being weak for really quite serious reasons. Um, secondly, if I were to postulate a God, I've now got a whole host of problems. Like, um, you know, there's problems with like the, the, the paradox of, uh, of omnipotence, for instance, or there's problems, um, you know, reconciling God's foreknowledge with free will, right? So we've now got to answer all of these problems. And maybe there are answers to them, but the point is that, the minute you postulate God, right, you're taking on a pretty significant um, explanatory burden to explain all of these problems. Um, and then there's problems of like epistemic access. So it's, you know, even if you can establish that there is an omnipotent, omniscient, benevolent creator of the universe, right, how do you, I mean, that in a, in a way is only 10% of the argument. How do you get from that to the claim that you know what this entity is commanding, um, you know, like that, there's a whole other thing you've got to fill in there. Um, and then there's just, a, I, I guess, a, um, I, I see the, uh, the, the whole God hypothesis is just having like a lack of explanatory uh, value. Um, I, I see it as well as, it, it seems like when I look at it as a social phenomenon, it seems to depend a lot on like dogma and, and authority, which, which I, I, I don't like. Um, so I, I don't know, there's, there's all of these different things which, you know, push me. And some of them are more or less rational than others. I mean, you know, my general dislike of dogma and authority, you might say that's not a particularly like rational reason, but it's just one among many things that pushes me towards the uh, the atheist side. Yeah, I think that's a, a really helpful point at the end to make there, because I think uh, people are at their most rational when they can uh, acknowledge at least the bits that aren't 100% rational, <laughs> but appreciate the spectrum. And I guess it's it's really interesting. You made that point about epistemic accessibility. So, you know, how can we actually know uh, who God is? And uh, I guess it would just be interesting because I guess you kind of touched on sort of a bit of your, your broader philosophical views there as well just in terms of uh, and sort of your the one of the initial driving questions for you in terms of how much can we know about the universe uh, how much can we know about 
uh, anything. And obviously in this question, well, how much could we then actually know about God um, uh, through if he is not entirely apparent, um, especially to our experiences? It would just be good to get a, a bit of a understanding of sort of what is that broad philosophical view? What is that uh, epistemology that you, you sort of hold to? Okay, so I, I would uh, consider myself an empiricist. Um, now, uh, I, I'm an empiricist in a very specific sense. So traditionally, empiricism was seen as um, I, either a claim about the uh, uh, origin of our like ideas and knowledge, or as a claim about justification. So um, the, the usual kind of textbook definition of empiricism is that um, all of our concepts are derived from sense experience. Um, and so, you know, like any, any idea that you have, right, ultimately um, you, you have to be able to show how that derives from, you know, what you can see and touch and smell and so on. Um, or it's, you know, if you, if you can't do that, then that idea is, is just meaningless. Um, another way to think about empiricism is in terms of justifications. The claim will be that... Uh, the justification for our beliefs, like even if we can have ideas that go beyond experience, they're just not going to be justified unless you can show how they're derived from experience. Now, that's traditional empiricism. There are, I think, some pretty fatal problems with that kind of view. Um, so I'm, I'm working in that tradition, but I have a slightly different take on it, which is what I would say is um, I, I see empiricism as a kind of resistance to explanation by postulation um, or explanation by postulating entities beyond what we can experience. So for example, um, you sometimes get like debates in uh, philosophy of, uh, let's say philosophy of mathematics, where people will try to account for the success of mathematics by supposing that mathematical entities are these you know objective abstract objects in some you know realm uh, like be beyond the physical world or something, you know, something like that um, an empiricist is going to resist that right like you're you're explaining the success of a practice by postulating these entities beyond what we have any experiential uh, interaction with uh, similarly in the case of morality right moral realists will say postulate, um, moral properties or moral values um, in order to explain our moral practices. Uh, again, empiricists are going to have a problem with that. Um, and so that is, I, I think, so that's that's my, my broad perspective, um, is that I'm resisting the tendency to explain certain practices, certain social practices, whatever, by appealing to uh, uh, entities beyond what we have experiential knowledge of. Um, so I don't know if that, I don't know, does that answer the question? Um, I, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it does. Um, and I think uh, it's just helpful clarification. And you kind of touched on uh, one really particular topic that I'd really like to discuss with you because um, you, know, you mentioned a couple of times that you are a moral anti-realist. And I think um, for a lot of people that that might sound like a, a strange statement to make, to say that um, these morals don't exist. 
Or is that a correct way of under, understanding that statement? Is, is it uh, all chaos from now on if, uh, if morals don't exist? Or is there a more nuanced understanding uh, that sort of lies behind sort of that phrase? Um, I don't know. Like, just first of all, I'm, I'm not sure how uh, strange it would sound to people. I mean, maybe this is just a product of different experience, like you know, having a different background or whatever. But my experience, even before I got into philosophy, was that... Um, you know, most people seemed to, or at least many people seem to think that, you know, morality is just something that, you know, we make up, right? Um, so, I mean, I think that the, um, that there are many different forms of moral anti-realism. Um, the kind of position that I would hold is I would say that moral claims are essentially just fictions. Um, they're very useful. Um, but I don't think that any moral claims are true. Um, so, for example, you know, a claim such as, you know, you ought not to steal, uh, I would see that as a useful fiction um, rather than as something that uh, you know, accurately describes reality, um, I guess, to, to put it very simply. There are, there are other forms of moral anti-realism as well. So um, like one, form that used to be quite popular, not so popular anymore, is to say that moral claims aren't really expressing beliefs at all. So they're not really true or false. They're, they're just not valuable for truth or falsehood. Um, so on this kind of view, you might say that moral claims are expressing emotions or something like that. Um, again, I, I don't know, like, to me, if the differences there really matter. I'm, I'm not that bothered whether we uh, you know, take the line that you know moral claims are expressing emotions, or moral claims are uh, uh, that, that that they have a truth value, but they're just false. Um, the important point is that I don't think there are any moral facts. Um, morality is something that you know we invent, that we construct. It's not something we discover. <laughs> That's um, that's really interesting. I think this this feeds in for me a lot to the sort of um, objective subjective viewpoints within morality and within the sorts of um, constructs that help us to get to decision points almost. So I think for me, for instance, I would say you know stealing is wrong, um, and um, I would say that that's because I'm involved in a social contract where. I don't want my shit to be stolen and you don't want your shit to be stolen so let's let's not steal each other's shit essentially um and 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 obviously some people go actually no i don't mind stealing other people's stuff i'm going to go steal it and we kind of we, we 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 invent prison we invent sort of laws and stuff to help us to kind of live within this sort of social construct that we've all created essentially where we're all um, believing the same sort of contracts but it's not necessarily true in, a, in a, an objective sense um so i kind of want to i kind of want to get you to touch on that sort of objective subjective sense but also kind of be very interested to kind of hear your take on um the sort of hard wiring of morality within us so i mean i would i would say it's very much like these sort of social contracts come out of an evolutionary sort of like sociology response to those around us. So we've grown up, obviously, I say grown up, it like as in evolved um, um, through these sorts of um, essential social hierarchies where we kind of form groups of people or individuals or 
collectors or whatever um, and we begin to kind of try and live out the best life that we can make for ourselves within these sorts of um, yeah, hierarchies or structures or whatever language you want to use so there seems to be an evolutionary sense within us that is pushing us forwards and I would say that's the closest to an objective sort of bedrock that we can get I don't think there's anything outside of the universe that we can go there is a perfect moral lawgiver and, and we're, we're kind of deriving our, our morals from them I don't obviously don't agree with that but um, so yeah I kind of want to get your, your idea of objective subjective and also the sort of evolutionary traits and whether you think that could be the thing that is the closest to a bedrock we can get to um yeah a lot of what you've said there as, as i see it is is entirely compatible with a, a kind of anti-realist um approach i mean so just to be clear you know when i when i use the example of um you ought not to steal uh i'm totally cool with endorsing that um uh, most of the time, there are circumstances where I don't mind if people steal, but the general uh, idea that you ought not to steal is, yep, good. Uh, but um, I just wouldn't say that it is true. Um, so uh, I think that where this, the, the, the it seems to me that the, the real kind of key, um, like, uh, point where, where realists and anti-realists disagree, at least as in terms of how philosophers tend to use these terms, um, is that when we say something like you ought not to steal, it seems like we're not just, you know, making a claim about, um, you know, what would benefit you uh, or what would best satisfy your desires or something like that. Um, obviously, you know, if I say, for instance, uh, I don't know, uh, if you want to stay warm, you should put on a jacket because I can see that it's getting colder. And, you know, uh, I, I, I know that by putting on a jacket that will keep your body temperature up, right? I can say something like that. And if it is indeed the case that you want to stay warm, then, you know, I've now given you a reason to put on your jacket, right? Um, so this is a, uh, what we'd call a hypothetical imperative, right? If you want X, then you ought to do Y. In the case of something like you ought not to steal, um, we can make those sort of hypothetical imperatives. We can say, if you don't want to be punished, you ought not to steal. But that misses something which seems to be essential to moral thinking. Um, because it seems like, you know, even if you could get away with it, even if it would satisfy all of your desires, even if there was no risk, you still shouldn't steal. Um, and if you don't like the stealing example, then, you, you know, come up with it, like torture a child, right? Even if it would uh, satisfy all of someone's desires to torture a child, even if there's no risk to them doing it, they still shouldn't do it. And we feel that really strongly. So morality has this um, feature where it is categorically normative, which is to say it's binding upon us, regardless of what our desires are. Or morality gives us reasons for action um, that are independent of our desires. Um, and like this is the thing I think that a lot of anti-realists find quite puzzling about morality it's like well what what on earth could that be what could that consist in um so uh so yeah we're, we're, we're uh, like i'm perfectly happy to make moral statements but ultimately i don't think that there is anything that can um you know that can play this role of being binding on us regardless of our desires and so that's why well that's one reason why i'm a moral anti-realist I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting When Belief Dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, 
I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. Uh, yeah, you, 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 were, you were saying um, this point about how you see it as being a product of like socially contracting. And um, yeah, so this is something that I really like. I really like this kind of perspective. I think it's a very, very useful perspective on morality. Now, I don't think it's necessarily the only perspective we can take, but uh, I do find it very useful. So the way that I like to think about morality, and I think this is in line with what you were saying, is that um, you know what, like what what we're really doing, right? Um, is or or at least maybe not what we're really doing, but a very useful way to think about it is that moral rules are um, things that we, we yeah we we agree to. We agree to constrain our behaviour because we can see that if everybody else was to accept the same constraints, this would be in the interests of all of us. So, you know, a simple example would be something like if there's uh, a field and every day everybody's going out and using the field, and then we realize everybody's walking over this field and it's degrading it, right? So we all decide like, hey, what we'll do is we'll say everybody gets to go on the field one day a week. Um, And then, if we all accept that constraint, if we all agree to constrain our behavior and follow that rule, it benefits everyone. Um, so this is this is how I see morality emerging. And I think this is, I mean, it's not just a useful way of thinking about morality today. I, it, I, I think it makes a lot of sense of like how morality actually emerged in the first place. Um, like the, you know, the, the, the origin of it, humans are a social species. We benefit enormously from social cooperation. Um, so, uh, a rule like, you know, don't steal. I mean, in itself, that's far too vague to help us because, you know, we, we need to know what counts as stealing. But um, it's very, very useful for every society to have some sort of property convention. Um, and it benefits me enormously if, like, there are certain things that I own that everyone else is agreeing that they're not going to take. Um, so ultimately, I think that, you know, when, when I think about morality, I, I do see it as being something that is fundamentally grounded in self-interest. Um, or at least if I'm if I'm giving moral arguments, I think that appealing to that kind of long run self-interest, you know, saying to people, OK, look, um, you will benefit. Right. If all of us agree to adopt this rule. Um, that seems like a very that seems to me the, the 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 best way to proceed. I think that's probably the most persuasive way to proceed because you can show that actually the, the moral rules are in a sense in the self-interest of of everyone. Um, so I, I like that perspective. I don't see it as being a, a, as justifying a kind of realism though, because ultimately those rules, like if we come up with the rule like you ought not to steal, um, it's still you know there, there isn't. This is just something that we've constructed. It's something we've invented. Um, you know, it's, it's not something we've discovered. And I mean, ultimately, it isn't 
it isn't binding on anyone regardless of their desires. I mean, ultimately, if there's somebody who just says, I don't care, right? I, I, I just don't care about this. I'm going to steal your stuff anyway. Um, and I'm perfectly happy to accept the risk that other people might steal from me. I mean, that's, that, that's it. That's the, that, in a sense, the end of the conversation. Um, so, uh, but I, I, I do, I, do um, I think, share your intuition that that's a, that kind of con socially contracting moral rules is a useful way to think about it. Um, that was what I was going to say. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting stuff. And I, I like the fact you've made that distinction almost of, um, as opposed to, you know, sometimes using that term of realism, anti-realism, almost that discovered versus invented. Um, because I think sometimes that's a sentiment that anti-realism just is promoting chaos, uh, which I think there's a lot of nuances within it um, that don't necessarily go down that line. And I think, you know, especially reflecting on my views, um, obviously changing from a Christian to an atheist perspective. Um, I never had this view that morality was like this weird abstract property, um, but it was more that obviously God had omniscience and so therefore wasn't confused about any moral matter. He had omnibenevolence, so we could trust that his judgments were correct. So it was an entirely subjective and relative morality but there was a reference point for it there was an, an authority in it and I think many Christians sort of present this moral argument for God that effectively if uh, there is no God there is no authority and therefore it's 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 all complete chaos and I'm, I'm just curious uh, to hear your views on um, a particular sort of a uh, an implication of this in terms of retribution, sort of punishment for doing wrong versus some consequentialism uh, sort of viewpoints that exist in sort of the idea of justice in terms of um, sort of looking at the situation overall and trying to reduce the amount of harm or the amount of suffering that exists in the situations sometimes using punishment as deterrence or things like that but not actually enjoying punishment for punishment's sake and sort of that's where sort of this conversation more around moral authority comes from be really interested to hear your views on sort of that retribution versus consequentialism sort of dynamic that exists there as well um do you mean with respect to the moral argument for god or just in general um I'm not actually, I, I, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not aware of the retribution versus consequentialism, how that relates to the moral argument for God. So, um, so to explain a little bit more of my thinking there, um, in terms of if morality is real, we have justification for punishment for someone transgressing against the very real moral property. We're not just doing it relative to our desires as perhaps an anti-realist would um so it tends to be from what i've observed that moral realism is held to more for retributive ideals i don't i don't know if that's but the case i'd be curious um, to hear your thoughts yeah so it seems to me that you know you can quite consistently be a realist who is just straightforwardly consequentialist right like you could just say that um it is a fact uh about reality. It's a fact that we discover, not invent. 
that um, you ought to do whatever you know maximizes welfare for everyone, and it would you know then you could then make the argument that actually you know retribution doesn't doesn't do that. And in fact, I mean, you wouldn't really have to even make that argument because uh, um, it, you know the whole point of retribution, um, insofar as like seeking a kind of balance uh, or whatever for things that have happened in the past, is um, yeah in conflict with that purely forward thinking um forward thinking in the sense that it's concerned only with what happens in the future uh consequentialism um and similarly like that th it's totally possible to be an anti-realist who um favors retribution um i i don't so i i, I don't know i i don't i don't know if there's a connection there that i see um maybe it's the case that for one reason or another most realists do lean towards retributive views but i i'm not sure if that's true among philosophers um i i think yeah i i, I don't know I, I i don't i don't know i don't see a connection um between those sorts of views yeah okay that's that's really interesting because i i i've I kind of agree that they're sort of logically not connected, um, mm. but it was just uh, uh, obviously, especially reflecting on sort of the the Christian worldview, which does have that element of retribution in most understandings of Christian worldview, mm. and also tended towards some sort of moral realism. Um, whereas now, on the other side of it, tending to find more atheist worldviews tend to revolve around an anti-realist position and tend to revolve around the consequentialist position whether there was some sort of uh, inherent sort of connection in terms of okay, yeah. the authority that realism provides that can justify retributionism but well I, I i feel like um in the case of something like christianity i i would have thought that the explanation would probably just appeal to um you, you know like the kind of historical factors and like social circumstances in, in which it arose like now that you've said that I see what you mean um I think that yeah I I've also experienced this like people who are atheists or who are naturalists or whatever will be more inclined towards uh something like consequentialism but I think part of the reason for this is that um like okay let's say that you know you're a utilitarian and you say that the greatest happiness um so, so the, the, the right action is whatever maximizes happiness for all well, the thing is, is that that, um, like, as long as you're willing to accept that, right, as a principle, then you actually have, um, first of all, a uh, kind of entirely naturalistic ethics insofar as happiness is something that we all agree, like, actually exists, right? And it's also something that we do have some ability to measure. Uh, we know what sorts of uh, causes bring about greater happiness. Um, so... Uh, that like sort of fits quite naturally with that you know secular naturalistic worldview. Um, if you want to talk about like retribution and desert, right? Like so, somebody's committed a crime and therefore they you know deserve to be punished, or that it's almost inv invoking like an idea of imbalance, as it were, or, or like you know like they've done something bad, and so. You know, we have by doing something bad to them uh, that somehow eases the balance. I, I I don't know. It's 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 much more difficult to understand 
what those sorts of properties would be in a naturalistic worldview. Um, so yeah, I, 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 get, I guess there's perhaps a connection in, in that sense. Yeah, inter interesting thoughts. Sorry, um, <laughs> bit of a, a tangent to have gone down. It's no problem. I, um, I, I don't mind. I, yeah, I, well, <laughs> um, sorry, I hadn't like, as I say, really encountered that uh, before. So yeah, I, I don't know if that, that's just off the top of my head as, as an explanation. <laughs> but no, I think it's really helpful. I think, I think what, what, just, just reflecting on it, what I can kind of see though, is that um, it's, it's almost like a, a an, an, an alien idea about how Christianity um, does actually kind of warp people's minds around this sort of idea of, of, of judgment. Um, anyway, we, we can, we can part that, but it's really interesting to kind of see you kind of just not understand it to start with, because um, for so many people that they're, they're literally living it day in, day out, it's that kind of weird, uh, it's, it's just nice actually. And, and just a, just a very different take, which is just fantastic. So thank you for that. Um, speaking of tangents, um, I thought it'd be really interesting to, um, just get your take on uh, massive subjects. So yeah, here you go. But free will, essentially, kind of try and understand what your thoughts are on free will. Do we have it? Do we not have it? I can kind of see um, basically no free will and anti-realism going together, but um, maybe not. Maybe I just don't have the whole picture. So what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on free will, Kane? Um, so I think that uh, they might go together in, in, a, in a sense, which is that... Uh, if if we're moral so this is very very controversial but one intuitive like take on um on, on morality is going to be that well first of all um to say that you ought to do something implies that you can do it right so uh, to say that you ought not to steal implies that you have the ability not to steal or to say that you ought to give money to charity implies that you have the ability to give money to charity um if you then just deny that there's free will, uh, then actually you can only do what you in fact do. Um, you, 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 know, you, you don't have the ability to do anything else. You don't have the ability to do otherwise. Um, so in, in that case, um, it looks like, well, I mean, it wouldn't really make sense to say that like you ought to do only what you ever actually do. I mean, that's, that's not a particularly substantive moral <laughs> uh, uh, view. So, um, yeah, certainly I think that if you deny the existence of free will, that may well give you reason to be an anti-realist. Um, uh, it, it, again, it, this is very controversial, but I, I, I do think there's a connection there. Like, arguably, our, arguably, it is essential to our thinking about morality that people have the capacity to make decisions. Um, and if we didn't have the capacity to make decisions, then, like, you know, that it wouldn't make sense to say that people are morally praiseworthy or morally blameworthy or that there's like moral constraints on our actions. So I think there is a connection. My own uh, view on this, um, I, I, I think that there is free will. I'm inclined to think there is free will, but in the sense that I think that we have um, a whole bunch of capacities that when I say we, I'm talking about like normal adult humans, we have a whole bunch of capacities that distinguish us from inanimate objects and from other animals. Um, so we have the capacity to uh, reflect on our actions. Um, you know, I can do something and I can think about it later and I can say, huh, was that the, you know, was that a good decision? Was that the right thing to do? You know, I can, I can do that. Um, we have the capacity to like 
engage in kind of abstract thought. We have the capacity to engage in arguments about the actions that we perform. Um, you know, we can, so we, we, we can do all of these things. And my inclination is just to say, like, as long as you've got those capacities, that's all that you really need for free will. Um, you know, the idea that you need the, uh, the world to be a certain way, that the world has to be fundamentally indeterministic or something, uh, I think is, is a bit strange. Um, I mean, ultimately, if free will is something that matters to us, and it seems like it does matter to a lot of people, um, then I don't think it should be something that depends on controversial metaphysical assumptions about the nature of the world, right? So the way that the free will debate has usually gone, you know, this debate about, well, is the world determined or indetermined? Um, I'm inclined to say that's actually irrelevant to anything that really matters to us. So if free will is supposed to be something that matters to us, then it has to be irrelevant to free will. Um, and actually there are these capacities that we have uh, that seem to, you know, that seem to be important and that do distinguish us from other types of entities. But having said that, if you want to say that really there is no such thing as free will, um, I, like, I'm, I'm fine with that as well. I, I'd be quite happy to accept that position. Um, I just think that, yeah, like, I, when, when we use that term free will, I think that it's useful to think of it as something that picks out um, capacities like the ability to reflect on your actions, like the ability to you know, uh, uh, like overrule your initial desires. You know, I have a desire for a chocolate cake and then I think, nope, I'm not gonna eat that because I want to stay healthy. I think that's enough for free will. Um, I don't think you need anything more than that. So uh, uh, that's my take on it. I can't remember the study, but I, I, I remember uh, hearing about it where they they had these individuals who they would sit in a room before taking them into uh, the experiment where they could do something that was sort of like stealing or be a little bit sneaky. Uh, and in the room uh, before that, there was an article that either was an argument for free will or an argument against free will. Uh, and those that had read the argument against free will were more likely to carry out the immoral act. So maybe we should just believe in free will until absolutely certain that we don't have it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, this would be a good reason, I think, to um, like the, the, the sort of two things that we can do, you know, in, in philosophy. Like sometimes we might just be trying to um, kind of capture how people are actually using their concept like certain concepts so when we talk about like the concept of free will we just try to analyze what is the concept of free will um, and that's like a purely descriptive project but we might also be trying to uh, engage in a a a, a more normative project where we're, we're trying to say okay what should this concept be like we have this concept free will right and it turns out when we you know think about it there are various problems with it and uh, maybe it's incoherent but actually um, you know we can take the concept and uh, make it more precise and you know alter it slightly um, so when I say that you know all that really matters is that we have these capacities 
uh, I admit that I'm not, I admit that that's different to what a lot of people have in mind when they think about free will. Um, but I think it's a useful way of thinking about that concept. And the kind of um, experiment you've noted there, I think does give some support to the sort of project of like taking these things that matter to us and then figuring out how to understand them in a way that's coherent, um, you know, rather than just uh, just saying, well, let's just do away with it and like say that, like, like eliminate this from our discourse. If it is indeed the case that uh, um, the concept of free will plays a useful role, then, you know, we should retain it and um, try to make it coherent. So this is going to sound um, probably mental, which is fine, but um, essentially there's this, there's this idea that um, to actually hate somebody, you need to have the ability to think that they could have acted differently. So if you can start to incorporate the idea that they didn't have an option in how they responded, given kind of what we believe free will to be, which is the kind of autonomous decision to be able to, or the autonomous ability to be able to make a decision regardless of restraints. So we can actually make, so essentially if we were to rewind the universe to a moment ago, I would have said different words essentially, and I wouldn't have fucked it up, which is just never going to happen. So um, basically there's this, there's this idea that um, you don't, have the ability to hate somebody they couldn't have done otherwise you begin to actually see that okay sure free will can grant you some things but also losing free will can also grant you other things and i think when we begin to kind of unpick it a little bit more the kind of concept between decision making and having a ability to freely make a decision also comes into play so a, a great example would be kind of like you know um to, to kind of pick two albums you can you've got all the albums in the world you can think through to pick the you know your 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 top two albums and um you're going to just randomly pick two albums out the top of your head and then when i go to you like but why didn't you pick you know um say travis um the man who which you would definitely not have picked um you know you won't have ever had the option to make that decision there wasn't a free choice to be able to pick travis the man who you were always going to pick the two albums that you picked um, and i say do you pick two more again you don't have the ability to then go away and um you know pick something else um oasis um something or other um definitely maybe or whatever album you want to listen to from from oasis like you just you just wouldn't have had the ability to to pick that there you go two words uh, two one 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 scottish and one uh english uh bands there anyway um so basically what 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 i'm trying to get at with that is this idea that um a free like losing the the kind of classical concept of free will can grant you good things i think and also um there doesn't they're just there just doesn't seem to be that position within us where we it, where we had the ability to make a free choice. We're definitely decision-making creatures, I think. We're making decisions all the time. But it's the freedom within those decisions is always constrained and funneled. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm aware this is kind of a very abstract tangent, but any kind of like final thoughts on that, Kane? Um, yeah, so this, like you, you may actually be right, right? I mean, it could be the case that thinking of free will um, is uh, an impediment to things that we would value and maybe we should just dunk it. Um, so uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, but um, this point about how you said that, that, that the freedom is like channeled and funneled. Um, I mean, I, I would be kind of inclined to say, what is it that, that you actually want here? I mean, because like one thing you might, you might think is, okay, then, right. If, if we're not going to be thinking of like if, if we're not going to um think that free will is possible in a world where you know everything's causally determined um then is it a matter of like randomness or chance um but then it's it's hard to see how that would 
be in any sense an expression of yourself or your will as well so like for instance um to take the example of picking the albums um imagine that it's the case that like the reason why i pick a particular album um like let's say i pick frank zappa's joe's garage the reason why i pick that rather than an album by derek bailey is because in my head just for some reason like a particle decayed or like you know shot off at, to the left rather than the right um okay so so the reason behind my decision there is just this completely random event but i have no control over that random event um so i don't know like that that doesn't seem like intuitively to be any freer than uh the idea that i'm completely causally determined so either so the point is that either way right whether the world is causally determined or whether the world has these random events going on in it either way it's difficult to see how you have like uh an autonomous decision over your own action and so maybe what we should conclude from this is just that okay the everyday colloquial idea of free will is kind of incoherent um you're not going to have that you can't have that in any possible world but what you can have are certain capacities like the capacity to reflect on your own decisions and the capacity to overrule your initial desires and you know what those capacities are really important like those really matter um that they 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 uh contribute enormously to our lives so um maybe that's maybe that's all we should really care about um that's my take on it yes exactly um because whether you're saying that the world is causally determined or the world is indeterministic, you're making a metaphysical claim. And obviously, this is not something that I want to go in for. So when I try to think about things like free will, I want to do it in a way that doesn't uh, depend on making those those sort of controversial claims. Amazing. Um, Kane, it's been so good to talk to you. I kind of want to make sure that before we let you go, we kind of... Um, understand first of all what your top two albums are um, but also um, any sorts of um, book recommendations or where people can go to um, begin their journey I guess within philosophy I know that I've already spoken to you um, you recommended the book Think by Simon Blackburn and then we actually ended up speaking to Simon Blackburn a couple of weeks ago which was pretty cool um, but yeah anyway it'd be, it'd be really good to kind of get get your thoughts on books for people to be able to go away and to begin to investigate this um, and yeah where people can find you online if that's okay to, to, to follow your work. Um, yeah, my uh, my channel is Kane Baker ninety one um, on on YouTube. If you just type in like Kane B philosophy, then you know come up. Um, the books, uh, uh, well, I mean, you mentioned Simon Blackburn's Think. Um, I, that is generally considered a very good introduction. Um, for the things we were talking about, it's kind of hard to recommend stuff on metaethics because I don't think that there's a lot of um, that there aren't a lot of introductions to metaethics that are like uh, just uh, presented at a, um, a sort of more popular kind of level. Um, it's it's all much more technical. Um, Andrew Fisher has, I think, the a, a, quite a nice introduction to it. But I mean, it is like basically a textbook. Um, so you know, uh, but yeah. Uh, so and Andrew Fisher's contemporary uh, metaethics, a contemporary introduction, I think, is is quite good. Um, oh, what other stuff did we, we I, oh man, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I'm not good at thinking of things off the top of my head. Um, and I haven't done philosophy of religion in a long time, so I can't, 
I, I, you'd probably be able to recommend better ones to introduce people to that field, actually. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'll leave that there. Um, Amazing. Kane, it's been just a delight to talk to you as always. Thank you for your YouTube channel. Thank you for your thoughts and the way you express them. And thank you for coming on the show, mate. It's been a been an absolute pleasure. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope that um, my comments were at least reasonably coherent. Um... <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media, or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.